Amen. Good morning, y'all. If you got your Bible with you, open up to 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. When you got it, say you got it, please. There are several different kinds of tests um, that people take or have been involved with. I, I suppose one is if you've been in school before, you've studied for spelling tests or math tests or a whole host or litany of tests, I'm sure, that you don't care to remember. Would you go back with me for a moment, though, to elementary school? How many of you crammed the, 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 the night before? Crammed the night before, perhaps? Or maybe the day of I've done this? It's stored in my short-term memory for a very short time. And it's quickly ejected for something else that I care about, like trading card game information or movie, like nonsense kind of trivia kind of stuff. That's the one kind of test that we're most, maybe, we're most familiar with or when we would think about the word. That's probably what's conjured to mind. The other one though is to prove like something else's authenticity. It's a litmus test, if you will. Have you ever bought a bootleg movie before? Pastor Tim, what is that? Are you buying things on the black market? Is that what you're doing? I don't know, I was a teenager or so, and someone thought it would be a good idea to get me one of those Jackie Chan movies. I think it was like Rush Hour or something like that. It was a long time ago. If you haven't watched the movie, this is, a, I'm, not, I'm not saying go watch it. Don't go watch it today. Don't do that. It's Super Bowl. Enjoy that instead. But I do like Jackie Chan films. Um, but I, I noticed something was pretty, pretty off when I opened the package. And the first thing that I noticed was this doesn't look like any Jackie Chan film, like the, the package in this weird DVD case, if you remember DVDs. It, it doesn't look like, like a company made it. It feels like someone just printed the, the, the sheet out in their home and just like slid it in the case. This is very weird to me. And when I open it up, there's no picture, there's no writing, there's, except for someone writing with a Sharpie marker. This, clearly someone didn't buy this. And then I watch it. And it's all shaky cam. Someone was filming this while they were in a movie theater. This doesn't pass the sniff test, friends. This is a bootleg film. I wish I kept it still just for nostalgia's sake. If I were to put this up against like the actual production, would it, would it really stand? Of course not, it wouldn't. John is so interested in, in giving a test that we, we see, we see a kind of moral test that he gives to the people in this church that he's writing to. Why? Because the faith of the heretics, of the false teachers that slithered their way into their fellowship. They denied essential components of the faith, but they taught that they had the genuine article. What we believe ultimately comes out throughout our lives though. 
if you give it just enough time, we, we reveal what we really believe to be true. What is the test? The test for the Christian is evidence of a changed life. If you're taking notes, the main idea of the passage today is following the lit path leads to a changed life. And you can ask the question, wrestle with the question, let it examine you. Would you pass the test? Would you pass the test? If you're able to, would you stand out of reverence for God's word? We should see an underlying portion on the screen there. As it's there, would you read that part out loud with me? This is what God's word says to us this morning, starting in verse one. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth isn't in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. This is God's word to us. You can be seated. This is the drumbeat over and over again that you see in the New Testament. And if you're taking notes again, the first thing that you should pay attention to in the first two verses is that Jesus is the answer to our sin problem. The Bible is painfully clear that we have a sin problem. How does he, he start the, the, the section? How does he start the passage? He says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. So that you may not sin. Then he continues on though saying, but for anyone that does sin. It's really interesting grammatically. That word but can also be translated as and. The but and the and, they can almost be shifted between one another. And so maybe we could read it as, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And yet, or even, and. So it's not a question of if one sins again. I think John is concerned about whether or not when you do sin. When we sin, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone does sin, he has a response for us. Jesus has a response for us. And that is the light has come for you and me. Everyone in here simultaneously lives as sinner and saint. If you belong to Jesus, 
today. And the multi-purposed work of Christ continues to be applied to us today. And we see it in three different ways. The light of his gospel, if it were to refract off a prism, we get to see different colors here. And I think that's what John is showing us. What does it look like? First, we see Jesus as our advocate. Jesus is our advocate. This is a biblical term. Being an advocate or advocacy um, might make you think about John 14, when Jesus is talking about the spirit of God coming to be a helper or paraclete to Christians. Literally, it's to be a comforter to those that are in a really dark world. It talks about how the Spirit of God has a specific ministry to those that are Christians. Namely, the Spirit, he leads his people into truth and he reminds them of those truths as well when they seem to forget. But John uses the same language for Jesus here. Jesus is an advocate. Jesus is a helper, but they have different roles here. So where the Spirit points us to truth, what's John doing here? He's saying that Jesus is our legal defense. He's our legal defense attorney. Jesus is working, and this might be off-putting to some of us in here, Jesus worked to get us out of jail eternally. Jesus worked so that he could get us off freely. He doesn't do it by pleading our case though. How does he do it? He's not just any kind of advocate. He goes on to say that he is a righteous advocate. Defense lawyers today, good, bad, or indifferent, whatever you think of them, kind of mirror Jesus in some way, friends. That might feel a little bit uncomfortable. The difference, though, is, is that if I were going to jail and I needed someone to stand in the courtroom and plead my case, I'm giving them money to do it. The difference between this kind of defense attorney in our own day today and Jesus himself is that Jesus pays the bill too. God sends his son to make sure that your crimes don't stick to you. Not based upon you, not based upon anything that you've done, not how good you are because if there is anyone that does sin, That means that we need someone to plead a different case for us then. It means that God's own son is righteous. That means that he consistently over and again did the right thing and loved the right way and believed the right thing. Jesus believed the right thing in his own day, in his body, on earth, in his ministry. And all of his ways are good and pure. Jesus never got ticked off when he spilled ketchup on his shorts, friends. Jesus, even when his mama told him to do things that he didn't want to do, he never had one second of a bad attitude. 
How many of us got frustrated on the way over here? How many of you that are married today had a tiff with your spouse just before walking through this, the, the doors in this building? Jesus doesn't come to plead our case. Jesus comes to plead his case before his father. There's so much richness here. I, I wish we could spend all, like, all our time just on these different words. Perhaps the most important word just today to focus on though is that Christ is our propitiation. Christ, we're talking about Jesus' work specifically through his shedding of his blood for sin. His blood is what pleads on our behalf. His good, righteous relationship with the Father is what he pleads on our behalf. That's what he pleads on your behalf. But the multifaceted love of God in Christ is seen as one that doesn't pour out wrath upon you. And that is the painful reality for those that are called sinners that haven't placed their hope in Jesus. Maybe this would be helpful. Umbrellas are very useful when it's raining. Would you agree? How useful are they, though, when it's raining and you keep them in your car? I'm notoriously leaving my, my umbrellas in unhelpful spaces, and I end up getting drenched regularly. It's unhelpful. If only I had something to cover me when there's a dramatic downpour instead of it looking like a movie scene and I have like dramatic background music in the background like a sad boy. Jonathan Edwards talked about the wrath of God being poured out on the world one day like a waterfall. And it would cascade upon the earth with such force that not even the strongest demon in hell would be able to push back against its waves. And it comes from an infinitely just God who's infinitely holy, who desires to be glorified above all things, who is to be glorified above all things. But the relationship that God has with those that are outside of Christ isn't that his glory changes them, but his glory flattens them. When we read the Bible, there are all sorts of characteristics about God. But God is holy. When you read the Psalms, though, you get a picture of mercy, don't you? Who is it that receives mercy? God says, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy. It's all about how God chooses to relate to us. How can God be both merciful and just at the same time? It's not like he flips a switch on and off. He's all of these things all of the time, forever. The difference is in how he relates to each 
one of us. When we go back to the passage, 1 John 1, 9, what, what is the basis of Jesus's forgiveness for you and me? It's not based upon his mercy, but rather it's based upon his justice and justice being satisfied in him giving his life for you and me. God is constantly holy, which means God is constantly just, which means God constantly moves towards in righteousness, punishing sin. Do you feel that? There's an unfortunate way in which we talk about sin and where especially lost people, and, and it, it, it just feels uncomfortable because it goes against this idea that God is always loving, which is true. But that it's, it's not actually God sending people to outer darkness. It's that they chose it themselves. And that's not, that's not what we would read in the, in the Bible, friends. God is active towards sin and his bent towards sin is to bring justice. And so there has to be a way out for us. What's the way out? God was patient with Israel in the Old Testament. Jesus is compassionate with the outcast in the New Testament. These are all showing how God relates to people. How does God relate to you and me? He relates to you and me through his son by giving his life for you and me. Is God father to everyone? No. God is creator to everyone. That's absolutely true. But we don't find him to be father to everyone because not everyone is connected to him by faith through what his son has done. And the same goes for propitiation. Jesus demonstrates fidelity to the father and the father is demonstrating justice for your sin and mine by punishing his son on our behalf. So what Jesus does as our propitiation is he covers us from the waterfall that would cascade on us and otherwise flatten us. Jesus actually enables us to live. Jesus isn't just our lawyer. Jesus doesn't just make us clean. Jesus covers you. Do you want to know what kind of love that God has for you? God loves you so much that he would punish his son in your place. Do you feel that? What other kind of love on the planet is there that could possibly come close to that? I understand it just a little bit more now that I'm a father. Not much more because God's ways are way above mine. But if you have a kid here today, how, much, how many of you would be willing to give your kid's life for mine? Anyone? You don't love me that much. 
I wouldn't give Emery for any of you. I love you. I love you. I love my Emery way more. The hardness of the doctrine of wrath and justice can only, it not, not soften, but all the more appreciate the love of God in Christ. It causes us to appreciate the love of God in Christ all the more. Knowing that God wants me Knowing that God wants you, if you trust Jesus today, it means that before the foundation of the world, God chose to give his son in your place and to offer his son for you so that you can stand free and free from the fear of wrath and judgment to come. Not just because he pleads your case and not just because he makes you clean, but because you don't get what you deserve. not just for our sins. You read that passage there too? This is uncomfortable for some of us that are more in the reformed camp. Not just for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. Not everyone gets to enjoy the freedom and the, the, the life-giving power of the gospel because they haven't trusted in Jesus. But if they did today, like friend, if you're here today and you don't know him, and you trusted him today, it would work just for you as it does for me and anyone else in here that follows Christ. God's son of infinite worth and infinite value could satisfy the sin debt that not only you owe but also what your, your family members and friends and your neighbors owe him to. There are very few things that have the capacity to be able to move us towards evangelism and giving the gospel away. And one of them is certainly that God is holy and that judgment is coming. And that there is no other way. John loves doctrine. John does not want you to be just a theology bot, though, in being able to quote your favorite theologian or your favorite Bible verse. John's test is less academic and it's more moral. John is more interested with what you do with what you know and have received from the Father. Less academic, it's more fact-checking. So he gives us, I think, two tests that we can see from here. Two tests for a transformed life. The first one is that there's a new way of living. We go down a little bit more. There's this dual expectation, again, for everyone in this room to call Christ Lord and King. He expects you to grow and love his ways 
And at the same time, he expects us to fail too. He knows our frame. He knows our weakness. In the addiction and recovery world, it's, it's fascinating. In order to grow over time, they expect people to relapse. They expect them to go back to their old addictions. Their old ways to deal with pain and sorrow that comes in to try to satisfy their, their aches. We haven't yet grown into full maturity of what Christ looks like. The fullness of his character hasn't been formed in us yet. Rest assured, you and I will continue to sin until we're home with him. The point of this isn't that we see growth as linear, constant all the time, but rather that it is very messy, but there is a Jesus-oriented trajectory in our life. What do I mean by that? Some of our greatest heroes in the faith did not get it right 100% of the time. Some of them believed really unhelpful things. Some of them, like C.S. Lewis, didn't believe that all of the Bible is actually inspired or without error. Would we say from the testimony of his life, though, in how he points us to Jesus and his work on the cross, in generally what we know about his life, would we be comfortable saying that he's a Christian? I think so. Brothers from the revolution, like Martin Luther, they believe some, some weird things. He couldn't be a member here today because of some of the things that he believes. He didn't get it all right. But would we say, based upon what we know about his life, would we say that he is a brother? 100% we would. Augustine, my hero, he gets a lot of stuff wrong too, especially in how he talks about women. That brother didn't just shape theology and how we do theology for a thousand years or politics. He got a lot of stuff wrong. But the point in the shape of his life, as messy as it was, as messy as our lives are, if we're in Christ, we can expect a Jesus-oriented trajectory, meaning that we're drawn more towards him in obedience. Why, though? Because of love. This is the ultimate thing. If we love him, we obey but God doesn't just want our obedience. He wants our heart. Tim, is that true? One of the most tragic stories in the Old Testament is when a dude becomes king, Saul. And it's almost like he has his own personal prophet, Samuel, warning him and guiding him, giving him direction about how to follow the Lord. And Samuel gives him a really clear direction. I don't want you to give any sacrifice until I come and meet you. And what happens? Saul gets antsy, filled with anxiety. And just before Samuel shows up, he offers sacrifice instead of Samuel. And this was the beginning of the end for Saul in his household. God wants obedience. God commands 
our obedience. He commands that we follow the lit path, but he doesn't want you to do it begrudgingly. He doesn't want to have to pull you along. He doesn't want to have a leash around your neck. Instead, what he wants is your heart free and open to follow and fall in love with him over and over again and to grow in love so that obedience might look even easier one day. So how do we grow in love with God? I would suggest four ways. First of all, I think you consider Christ and his love for us. And why shouldn't we think about his love? Is he not glorious enough? Has he not given enough for us? Is he not righteous enough? Has he not freed us from all sorts of things? Has he not promised us not just him, but the whole world? Because the meek shall inherit the earth. He promises us a new family. Has he not demonstrated fidelity to us over and again when we would otherwise walk away from him? Does he not pursue you? You want to grow in love for God and you want your heart to swell. You, you need to think and meditate and ponder about God's great love for you. And then you, you believe it. Don't let it just sit in your head, but let it fan into flame in your heart. You pray to experience his love too. Jesus said, John 14, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. But watch this, my father and I, we're gonna come to him and we're gonna make our home with him. Do you wanna know God more? Jesus is saying here in the gospels, it's through obedience. And so we pray to experience his love more. And then you let your love for Christ burn all the more. Faith in Christ increases love for Christ. And so this new way of living, it comes out of a brand new love. You might do good things. And you might pass that test. But do you love Jesus? And not in a kind of like nostalgic, um, emotional kind of way, but like a deep, abiding, growing fidelity to him. Are you blown away by his fidelity to you? Do you want to grow in obedience and in a transformed life? John would say that we love him today. Would you pray with me while we ask him to help us to that end? Father, you love your church, and I'm grateful for HBC. 
our hearts are in desperate need of renovation over and again. And the only thing that brings lasting change is the work that you've done. You've pled our case, your case specifically, because you're righteous, not us. We're simultaneously sinner and saint at the same time. And what continues to blow my mind is that a father would give his son in place of someone like me who believes awful things some days and says awful things, who does awful things. God, I'm a sinner. And I'm in desperate need of your grace. And so are my friends here today. Father, I pray that the love of Christ and the work of Christ would work in us and on our heart in such a way that it would fan in a flame love and adoration and glorifying you as the one that can satisfy us ultimately and finally, not just our sin debt, not just the, the wrath of God, but ultimately satisfying our soul. Would you do this, please? Jesus, we love you but we want to love you more. Help our unloveliness and unlovingness. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.